If you have your Bibles, please open them up to Genesis chapter 25. Genesis is that first book of the Bible. Would you join me as we ask the Lord's blessing upon our study of his word? Father in heaven, we do ask, O God, that you would so work in us as we run this race, as we live, that we would fight sin by the power of your spirit. That we may never cease to praise. Father, bless our time together in your word this morning. According to the riches of your grace in Christ. In him we pray, amen. In the spring, late spring, early summer of 2019, a well-known former pastor, he had pastored a a megachurch, a man by the name of Joshua Harris, he had pastored a, a very large church in Maryland, he had written numerous or multiple books, some of which were... Uh, bestsellers, very influential. He was considered, he's a, a, a youngish man, just a few years older than myself, considered an up-and-coming leader in Christian circles, one who was often uh, asked to join the platforms on conferences. But in that spring or early summer of 2019, he and made the public announcement on social media that they would no longer be together, that they were going to divorce. A few months later, Joshua Harris put out another post on social media, on his Instagram account, with him very clearly a a carefully uh, taken picture of him gazing out over a picturesque scene of lake and mountains in the Pacific Northwest. And in the caption, he he wrote these words, that the information that was left out of our announcement, that the announcement of him and his wife divorcing, the information that was left out of that announcement is that I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. In other words, decon- the biblical phrase is falling away. By all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Many people tell me that there is a different way to practice faith, and I want to remain open to this, but I am not there now. Of course, Joshua Harris isn't the only one to have made this step. I am certain that many of us here know someone who once formally professed to be a Christian, but has since left it all aside and and wandered far from, from Jesus, wandered far from Christ, now no longer considers themselves a Christian. You can find these stories all over the place, and they are old, they are young, those who turn away, there is no age limit to this. 
The biblical word that you often see associated with this is either falling away or apostasy. That more popular phrase today, deconstruction of the faith or deconversion. If we are converted into Christ, this is a a deconversion. And these deconversion stories are becoming more and more popular as influential people who once described themselves as Christians now no longer claim the title at all. This leaves us with hosts of questions. How does this something like this happen? Why does this happen? How can we know if, if we are on the path to this happening? Because clearly, just years before, Joshua Harris didn't know he was on this path. Others who, who started on this path didn't know they were on this path. They didn't know where it would take them. How do we know that we are not on this path? This is where our our text leads us to this morning. As we consider this family once again, this Abrahamic family and his line, and specifically towards the end as we consider Jacob and Esau. What we see here first, we saw this a couple of weeks ago, but I'm going to cover some ground because it it touches on what we are going to look at this morning. We see the grace of God, his gracious choice in verses 19 to 23. We, We covered this last time. I just want to touch on it briefly. But we see this is, these words, this is the genealogy, the family tree of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as his wife, the daughter of Bethuel. This is Rebekah. She's the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian, of Padan Aram, the sister. She's the sister of Laban, the Syrian. Now Isaac, and these are all characters that are going to come up again later. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord mercifully granted his plea and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her. And she said, if all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at how this, this division of these two nations, the descendants of Esau and the descendants of Jacob, how they are going, how they would be at hostility with one another through time all the way to Christ. What I want to draw attention to here, I, we looked at it just briefly last time, is that this last phrase, the older shall serve the younger. And what God is doing here, he's upending some significant cultural traditions. I don't know how it works in your family, but each, each family handles problems differently, especially as the children grow from being children to being all adults. 
Some families will make decisions about some big things. They'll make decisions democratically. Everyone will, all the siblings are given a vote. They may have a family meeting or, you know, now maybe just a, a, a call is given and, and that someone takes, okay, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to, fam- this is how we're going to decide things. And, you know, everything's done democratically. Others, it's, you know, someone is relied upon more than others. Maybe it's because they are closest to the problem. They're the one dealing with it the most. And so their, their word is given greater weight. Maybe it's because of someone's success. But in this time and in some families today, it works out whoever is the eldest son, they are the ones who have that authority within the family. That, that is how it works often in my family. Um, I saw this with my parents as they were deciding things, particularly on my dad's side, they were deciding some things about how to care for my grandparents. And I was allowed to sit in the meeting where all my aunts and uncles and their spouses were talking about how to care for my grandparents and they were weighing some options. And then because my, my uncle, who was the eldest son, he had passed away a number of years ago, that left my father as the next eldest son. Even though there were other sisters that were older than him, everyone turned to him and looked, all right, Al, what do we do? And I thought... That's incredible. Everyone gave their opinion and then they just looked at my dad. Okay, you make the decision and we'll follow it. And uh, that was simple, except that it you know, put a lot of pressure on my dad to just make a decision that everyone was going to be happy with. But some families handle it differently. In this cultural tradition, the eldest son, he was to inherit everything. The blessing would normally pass from eldest son to eldest son to eldest son. And here, God is reversing that. He is not bound by human tradition or custom. God will do his own thing. He is God. He has that right. He has that authority. What we see happening here, we saw two weeks ago, is that God is clearly preferring. He is clearly choosing or informing Rebekah and Isaac of his choice of Jacob over Esau. We saw two weeks ago how this will later be used to showcase or to to help assure the people of Israel when everything is going poor for them to assure them that God is love and that he loves them personally. Why? Because in Malachi chapter 1 verses 2 to 3 this passage is quoted Because God has loved Jacob, therefore he will not betray his people. And then we saw Romans 9, Paul picks this up. And there Paul assures us that we relate to God only by his grace alone. God's love for us is gracious. Therefore we we must be filled with awe and humility. Because God is merciful to whom he he will show mercy. To whom he will show mercy. But this raises all sorts of questions. I mean, if if God is choosing Jacob over Esau, does this mean that Esau himself, if he were to want God, that he's out, that he has no chance at getting these blessings himself? Is is, Is he held out, so to speak, kicking and screaming at the door of salvation, but he's he's not allowed in? Is that what's happening? Is that 
what this is teaching. And what we, what we need to see is that there are two truths in particular that we need to understand how this works together. The first is that God's sovereignty doesn't overturn, it doesn't upend our human responsibility. Esau, as we are going to see, is going to make his own terrible choices. Esau is going himself to fall away from the Lord. So yes, God is the one who is sovereign in it all, and yet Esau is making his own choices. Doing what he wants to do. And doing exactly what God said he would. More than that, human responsibility doesn't upend God's sovereignty. I mean, think for a moment what we would believe, what the people of Israel would believe if they didn't have that word of God in verse 23. And if they didn't have it, it, what might they think? Might they believe that God's plan was for originally Esau to and his descendants to have the plan and the promises but that they are lost simply because Esau made some poor choices. And if Esau can fumble away the promises of God, couldn't they? And if Israel can fumble away the promises of God, can't can't we? And if we can fumble away the promises of God, then none of us are sure. None of us can be certain. Or perhaps they might begin to think that Jacob, like, like Jacob, gaining the, the birthright through manipulation and deceit, that we can somehow, through our own merit, through our own effort, through our own cunning, we can access the redemption and the salvation and the promises of God. And what does this do to how we view our relationship with God? He is not a father who has loved us and called us and sent us son to rescue us and redeemed us by his grace. He is the one whom we have manipulated to get what we want. He has owed us. This is all the way, this is what we would think if we didn't have that verse, that word from the Lord in verse 23. And to be honest, that's how exactly how Jacob is going to view the Lord. I mean, look, two chapter, three chapters later in chapter 28, There, Jacob, he is at Bethel. And when God comes to him and visits him, Jacob's response to the vision of the Lord and that promise that the covenant that God renews with him there, Jacob's response is, God, I'll let you be my God. I'll allow you to be my God if you fulfill these certain things. If you will take care of me and provide for my needs and do this or that. I mean, Jacob here... I'll let you be my God. What arrogant jerk, right? That's the word. Does he think he is? Who do you think you are to to barter with God like that? And this attitude is going to cause Jacob years of sorrow and grief. And we we can avoid that if we will see that we, we relate to God by his grace. 
But behind everything, even the selfish and proud decisions of Jacob and Esau, God is providentially at work, just as he is at providentially, he is, he is providentially working in us now. And then is this, this family dysfunction in verses 24 to 28. We, we, let me just read it quickly. So when her days, this is Rebecca, when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So the boys grew and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a a mild man or a man content to dwell in the tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Parents, how did you decide to name your children? Was it because you you liked the sound of that name Or, or are you one of those parents where all of your children have the same first letter of each of their names? You know, I, I, I don't know how you are able, when you're calling them out, how you don't get them all confused. I, I get them confused and they're not like that. I don't know how you are able to call them out all in a string. Perhaps it's, it's naming them after a parent or naming them after someone influential. Uh, some Tribe, some tribes of Indian, native Indians, were, were to name their children after things they saw in nature. Here, it is to name their children after some character or quality they saw about the child. And so Esau, we're, we're told he's red, which means he's got like a, a ruddy, pinkish, healthy uh, color to his skin. This is the same description that is going to be used later of King David in 1 Samuel 16. But more than his red, reddish, healthy looking skin is how hairy he is as a child. Even as a, even as a baby. Uh, some of you may have your, your baby pictures still or you have your, your pictures of your children um, this would be the picture that parents would be immediately like, what happened to your child? He is so hairy as a baby that it looks like he has a, a, a coat of hair on him. That's a hairy baby. This, even, even as a baby, this is a hairy child. And they name him Esau, which means hairy, okay? Imagine being called hairy because you are a hairy person. Esau was named hairy because he was hairy. Harry. But more than that, he, we see in verse 27 and 28, 27, he is a, he's a skillful hunter. So the boys grew and Esau was a skillful, skillful hunter, a man of the field. Esau is a, a rough and tumble kind of guy. He loves the outdoors. He's the guy who spent his days hunting and riding long distances. And we shouldn't think that this is just Esau going out by himself, okay? He is the son 
of Isaac, the son of Abraham. We, we know Abraham from other accounts. He had with him a large party, hundreds of people, perhaps thousands of people are along in this camp with Abraham. Do you remember the story of, of Lot when he goes to rescue Lot? He takes with him 300 or more than 300 people. So clearly this, this camp isn't just Isaac out with himself in, you know, on, a, on a tent. He's, he's most likely got a party. He is living by the sword. He is hunting. He is, a, he is a, the picture later will be that he is kind of a violent man. But he's a, an adventurous guy. He likes taking risks. And Moses gives us this, this colorful detail about Esau. And in doing so, he is connecting us with similar characters before. Genesis chapter 10, we have another character who we're told is a mighty hunter. That's the man named Nimrod. And Nimrod is, we are told, he's a mighty hunter before the Lord. Not that that's a good thing. It's, it's a mighty hunter in defiance of God. Almost like that, that saying, like get, you know, putting your hand up in someone's face, a sign of disrespect. That's the picture. Nimrod is a mighty hunter in defiance of God. Esau here is a hunter in defiance of God. He's, he's got that same characteristic. He's described in similar language as Nimrod and Lamech, who was also in Genesis chapter 4 in rebellion to God and, and Cain and his line. The point Moses is making is that just as Nimrod was a, a warlord on the earth, so, so Esau himself was a man Skillful in hunting, yes. Outdoorsy, yes. But also prone to violence. And I realize this is, a, this is hunting season and there are more than a few of you who are anticipating another weekend of going out and doing violence, you know. For some idea, you know, some of us, the idea of going outdoors or camping is like finding a hotel room or opening a window you understand that thousands of years we have developed indoor plumbing and heating and, and we're going to give that up for a tent? What? Others of you, we're praying for. We're hopeful that you'll get it. No, you, you love going outdoors. And you should not think that hunting and being good at hunting or being an outdoorsy kind of person is somehow wicked or mark of evil or rebellion. This is not what Moses is saying. He's not condemning manliness either, as if God only loves weak and effeminate people. The Bible is filled with people who are bold and courageous. Think about King David. Think about his mighty men. Think about Joshua and Caleb and their acts of courage and boldness, fighting hundreds. Think about Joab and Asher. It's Abishai, his brother, rather. One of my favorite stories where they, the people, they're the two captains of Israel's army, and they find them surrounded with an army on either side of them about to be crushed by two separate armies. So Joab takes, tells his brother Abishai, we're going to split the army. You take half, you face one way, I'll take the other way. 
He says, look, if you need help, call out. I'll, I'll come help you. I'll send some men to help you. And if I need help, you, you come help me. And then he, he gives this line in 2 Samuel Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. I mean, that's boldness. That's courage there. That's that's some grit. You think of Jael, that that woman whom we are told about in, in Judges who takes the, the tent peg and when the, the leader, leader is, the, the warlord who has been pestering and conquering and, and, and coming after the people of Israel, he, she lures him in, she feeds him, he falls asleep and then she drives a peg through his skull. And then we think of our Savior, compassionate, Gentle, and yet fierce enough to overturn and drive, overturn tables and drive people out of a massive temple complex. It's not that God is despising bold or courageous people. Moses wants us to see that it is that act of God defiance, a proud self-sufficiency, this do-it-my-way attitude that characterizes Cain and Lamech and Nimrod and here Esau. Here is a man who is doing it his way. And this set of attitudes, if we are not careful, can be found in any of us. We can handle our own problems at work, at home, unwilling to receive or take or accept help from others. Trying to deal with sin on our own as if we, we got this. I don't need to bring anyone else in. I don't, need to, I don't need to tell someone else and have them challenge or encourage me. I can handle it in secret. I'm good enough. I can, I can deal with it. This is Esau. Jacob, he is a completely different kind of person. If Esau is the guy who is going to solve problems through sheer power and force, Jacob is the guy who is going to to do it through manipulation and deceit. He is an ordinary man. That is, he, he is a man content to dwell in the tents. Whatever the work was to be done around the house, he was an agricultural person. He was out working with the cattle, with the sheep. Whatever tasks needed to be in gathering wood, building fires, taking care of things at home, that was what Jacob did. He was an ordinary man leading an ordinary life. But the character of Jacob is, leaves a lot to be desired. He comes out even from the womb and, and, and soon is grabbing his brother's heel, almost as if he's trying to pull his brother back so he can get ahead. And if Esau's name is embarrassing, you know, Harry, Jacob's name means to cheat, cheater, deceiver, manipulator. They really needed a new baby name book. This ordinary man has terrible character. And rather, rather, It is him over his spectacular brother that the Lord chooses 
And we see his dysfunctional parents in verse 28. Isaac loved Esau. Why? Because, if he, ate, because he ate of his game. The, the reason his dad loved Esau more was because he made Esau, rather he made his life comfortable. Isaac liked what Esau gave him. He fed his pride. He fed his comfort. He was the child who was taking care of him. And there is, and, and Rebecca, for her sake, she, she loves Jacob more. And it, I think it's probably very clear to the boys, even if their parents never told them this, I love you more than your brother. And hopefully they didn't. Maybe they did. That would be terrible. But I'm sure it was clear to Jacob and Esau who loved them more. When they saw their parents fight between them over what was going on between them and their brother. And there's so much tragic here. This is only the Can you imagine the emotional scars as they are trying to please the other parent, trying to earn their affection? This becomes clear later on as both Jacob and Esau do what is wrong in hopes that their parents will love them like the other. And it's not hard to imagine how this is going to strain Isaac and Rebekah's relationship. You read on in this account and it is, it's difficult to understand how, how they could ever come back from some of the things that they do to one another. And this, this ought to be a warning to all of us parents. That the way we interact with our kids, the way we love them and treat them, it matters. It matters. We ought not to make our children earn their affection. We, may not, we must not give out affection and support to our children based on skills that they have or qualities that we ourselves like so that we give preference one to another. We are called to love them. We have been given them by God to love them, to teach them, to point them to Christ to ground them in him. To do the opposite will only yield them pain and ourselves pain. I want us to see that there, so far in this family, there is, there is no hero. There's no one worth praising. I mean, who do you get behind in this, right? Is it Jacob? Is it Esau? Rebecca? Isaac? I mean, who in this family is worth respecting? If you were watching a, a mini-series on TV about this family, you wouldn't be sure who to cheer for. Which character do you like? I don't know. Let's just go back to watching a cooking show. There's no one here that's praiseworthy. It's like a Shakespearean tragedy. Like no one is cheering for Macbeth, right? And yet what we see is God uses broken people, even from dysfunctional homes, to bring about his glorious purposes. And this is the marvelous mercy of God at work in the broken places and among the broken people of the world. 
And I know some of you are, this morning, are coming from broken, bitter places, bearing scars and carrying heavy baggage. And I'm here to tell you that the dysfunction in your story and in your life doesn't disqualify you from the love of God. Because God, our Savior, entered into the broken world, entered into the broken places. His own family disowned him. As he preached and taught, they came and they tried to discourage him. They thought he was insane. And he was rejected. He was crucified. And he was broken for broken people. That we who are sinners might draw near and through his wounds, through his stripes, we may be healed. There's one last part of this chapter to look at and that's the deconversion of Esau. Now Jacob cooked a stew and Esau came in from the field and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, please feed me with that same red stew for I am weary. Therefore his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, look, I am about to die. So what is this birthright to me? Then Jacob Jacob said, swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold him his birthright sold his birthright to Jacob, and Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank and arose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. You know, apparently Isaac had ignored the word of God, intended to give, and he intended to give the birthright to Esau. But Esau, for his part, apparently holds all of this as meaningless. And he gives up this birthright for some stew, some red stew. It's told uh, some some stew of lentils in, um, in verse 29. Please feed me with that same red stew. That word, those words there is, is red red. It's actually, that's, that it seems like the name of the dish is, is red red. And if that seems weird to you, I, I'm sure in a thousand years, if um, the Lord has not yet returned, that people are going to be wondering what was all this pumpkin spice we were putting in everything. Here is red red, this red stew, whatever it is. And he gives it up for this single meal. What would lead him to do this? What would lead any of us to make such a foolish decision? Let's explore it quickly, shall we? I think we see the first thing that we see is like his father, he was fueled by his desires. Just as, just as Isaac loved Esau because Esau gave him what he wanted, so Isaac showed the, his son, this is how you live. Live for yourself, live for your desires. So Esau walked in that way like his father Isaac, like Adam and Eve before they fell out of the garden, driven by the desire to taste of the fruit. Esau is living for immediate, instant gratification. He's driven by his appetites, driven by the desire for this immediate pleasure. He doesn't care about the cost, only care about the taste. 
You know, it's a part of maturity that we learn to control our desires. The athlete learns to say no to some things so that they can excel at other things. For our marriages to be successful, we must say no to everyone else besides our spouse. For us to be good and successful at work or at school, there are some things we can do, some things we cannot do. We cannot just live for whatever we want and expect success at anything. And yet that's exactly what Esau is is living here by. He's driven by his impulses. He had never learned to deny himself. So he's fueled by his desires. And making matters worse, Esau is tired and hungry. And this, this isn't an excuse, but it helps us understand Esau's predicament. I think, I think it helps us relate to him a little bit. I mean, which of us, when we are tired and hungry, don't make foolish decisions? It's when we are often at our weakest. It's then that are the muscles of self-discipline, especially if they have never formed, make us most susceptible to temptation. It is when we are weak and tired and hungry, perhaps frustrated with how things are going at work, frustrated with that our wives or our husbands aren't paying enough attention to us, that they don't appreciate us very much. If this is when we start to believe that a little sin, a little temptation, a little indulgence, a little pornography, a little bitterness, a little self-pity, that it'll help us make everything feel better. Little compromises are easily justified when we are weak and tired. But those little compromises add up. And this leads us to see the second thing. Not only is he driven by those impulses and desires, he is blind to the consequences. He despises his birthright. Those last five words are especially jarring. You know, Jacob, Jacob wants the birthright. Clearly, he doesn't want it because he values a relationship with God. But Jacob at least values it. He sees that it. it's a good thing. And he doesn't trust God because he's not willing to entrust it over to God how it's going to come to him. But Esau despise it. You know, the birthright isn't just a a bright financial future. It includes the blessings and the covenant relationship that God had promised to Abraham and passed on to Isaac. By right of being the firstborn, it, it should have been Esau who not only inherited twice as much as Jacob, who not only became the head of the family instead of Jacob, But rather, by right of being the firstborn, it should have been Esau who inherited the land. It should have been Esau whose descendants would become the people of God. It should have been Esau and his family and his descendants who were given the law and the prophets. It should have been through Esau that the Messiah came. It could have been Esau with whom God entered into a redemptive covenant relationship But Esau despised his birthright. He gave it all up for a bowl of food. This is why we read in this warning in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 15 to 17, see to it 
that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. So knowing that that bitterness can come in and totally destroy not only us, but an entire church, And then more than that, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Esau later came to regret this decision of selling his birthright. You remember... Perhaps if you have read ahead in the story that Esau wanted when his father wanted to bless him and Jacob manipulates and cheats and deceives his way to receive his father's blessing. Esau is grieved. He is angered at the very end. That's what he's referring to. It's not that Esau wanted to come back to God, but he had made his choice and there was no forgiveness. That's, that's not what the author of Hebrews is saying. That's not what is happening here. What is happening is here, Esau, Esau, when he loses out, not just on the birthright, but the blessing of his father, he is so filled with anger at what he has lost. Not his relationship with God, but just the gain that was to be had. And he realized how foolish he was. Esau didn't think this through. If he had only taken Two minutes to think about how this would affect his future, his his life, the future of his family, his kids, his descendants after him. If he had only valued it and spent two minutes contemplating how this would change his relationship with God, with his parents, he would have seen how absolutely insane this is. When we are driven by desires, we are blind to the consequences. Someone has said, rightly so, that sin makes us stupid. And it does. And this is what sin does. It blinds us. Perhaps you've watched someone throw their lives away and you've wondered how could they make such dumb decisions. But isn't it true that this is the same thing that could be said about us so many times in our lives? Brothers and sisters, we must weigh our decisions where they will take us. Oh, the moment, for the moment, sin seems so sweet. But the flower that it will bring is bitter. Husbands and wives, weigh out for yourselves what it would look like if you betray your spouse and commit adultery with someone. Can you imagine the guilt and fear of being found out that's going to weigh on you day and night? And then consider the conversation when you call me up. Pastor, can we talk? And I ask, how are you doing? And there's that long pause while you try to figure out what, what are you going to say? How do you respond? And then you begin to tell me, I, I've had an affair. And then I'm going to ask you a series of penetrating questions. 
Who is it? How long has this been going on? And we'll talk about the danger that you are in before God. Unless you repent, we'll have to work out to release you immediately from any areas of service. And then I'm going to ask you that question. Have you talked with your husband yet? Have you talked with your wife yet? And then imagine what you're going to do, how you're going to approach that conversation. Imagine the look on your spouse's face when you finally tell her. Will you ask to talk with them privately, away from the children, away where no one can hear? Can you picture how she might scream and cry or how he might just sit torn between anger and sadness? And then imagine how you're going to break the news to your children. And then imagine what it's going to feel like when You have to have this conversation again and again with her parents or his parents or your own parents. How are you going to have that conversation with friends, with family members, with people at church? Whether you like it or not, it's it's going to affect your entire life. It'll affect your job. It'll affect your finances. There will be no part of your life that will remain the same And what? All for what? A few scattered moments of pleasure? Those of you who are young or unmarried, what about you? Can't you see how the decisions that you make today will affect you for the rest of your life? Instagram and television will glamorize sex. They never show you the doubt, the fear, the years of pain and frustration as a result of having that kind of intimate relationship with someone before marriage. They ignore the guilt and the frustration and the suffering that it will bring. The decisions you make now about school and homework, about friends and relationships and technology, it matters. What will it mean if you never learn to work hard, kids? Think about that for a moment. Parents, think about what it will mean if your kids don't learn to work hard. What will they do in the future? How will you maintain a job, pay your rent? Look your spouse in the eye when you've lost another job because you showed up late again. Because you weren't doing your work. Brothers and sisters in Christ, do not be blind to the consequences of your decisions. Praise God that he will and he can forgive us. He rescues, redeems, and restores his people. 
But the pain that our sin leads to will always outweigh whatever it promises. Friends, the road to falling away from Jesus is steady and it is comfortable. It is a downward slope paved with temporary and short-term pleasure. But the end of that road is grief. It is frustration. It is shame. It is eternal torment. Let us watch ourselves Let us watch one another that we may not be like Esau who sells out on all the blessing of God for something as stupid, as short-lived as a meal. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are challenged by this text. For we see in our own hearts the very same sinful tendency that we notice in Esau. Wake us up, O God, from our slumber that we may see that your way is not just there for our protection. It is there for our great eternal joy and good and happiness and pleasure. Pleasure that if we are not careful, we will make shipwreck of in this world. Oh God, teach us to value you and to trust in your promises to be obedient to your word. Hold fast to us, O oh God, for our grip is weak. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.